Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Update on Marginal Zone Lymphoma. And today's program is a collaborative effort between many cancer organizations and many lymphoma organizations. And it is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have on the call today over 443 participants on the call. And you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and urban areas. And we also have international participants today on the call from Bangladesh, Canada, Croatia, India, Mexico, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call, actually, a lot of a global call. And so um, it's great having everyone on the call today. Um, and um, today's program is supported by an educational grant from Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have the best speakers today, just wonderful speakers. I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. David Strauss. Dr. Strauss is attending physician, lymphoma service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's professor of clinical medicine, Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Strauss is going to address an overview of marginal zone lymphoma, subtypes of marginal zone lymphoma, review of treatment options, and the important role of clinical trials and how research contributes to treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Strauss. Thank you, uh, Dr. Messner. So we'll discuss a little bit about marginal zone lymphomas in this call. Uh, marginal zone lymphomas are a uh, type of uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. They're in the low grade or on the average slowly growing category. Uh, they are so-called uh, because the malignant cells in marginal zone lymphoma resemble normal lymphocytes that are located in a region of a normal spleen called the marginal zone. Whether or not these cells are actually the malignant cells is not clear, but anyway, that's what the, that's what the term derives. It is a relatively rare lymphoma. It comprises about 10% of non-Hodgkin lymphomas. There are three uh, varieties of marginal zone lymphoma. There are marginal zone lymphomas of the spleen. Uh, there are marginal there are what are called extranodal marginal zone lymphomas, which means that they occur in sites that are not lymph nodes. These are sometimes called uh, mucosa-associated lymphoid tumors, or MALT, or MALT lymphomas. And then there are marginal zone lymphomas that involve lymph nodes, which is the most common location for other lymphomas. So we'll talk about uh, each of these a little bit separately. First, uh, marginal zone lymphomas of the spleen uh, typically uh, involve the spleen and cause it to be enlarged. The spleen is an organ that's in the of comprised largely of lymph tissue and other tissues that is in the uh, le left upper part of the abdomen. Uh, 
usually the spleen is enlarged in this type of lymphoma. And there is often involvement of the bone marrow, which is a factory for blood, with spillover of cells into the blood. So you can see these in the blood. There is a variant of this called uh, uh, the marginal zone lymphoma of the spleen with villous lymphocytes, where the lymphocytes have an unusual appearance with kind of raggedy edges that look sort of like hairy cells. Hairy cell leukemia is a different disorder but it also has uh, lymphocytes that look like this. It uh, is usually uh, uh, found, uh, somebody is examined and they noted that their spleen is enlarged. Usually the spleen, you can't feel the spleen if it's normal size, but it's usually enlarged. Some, very often people have no symptoms, probably most often. Um, the symptoms and signs that people can have are occasionally are abdominal discomfort due to the enlarged spleen. Sometimes the spleen is so large that it can kind of push on the stomach and limit its uh, ability to expand after eating. So people have what we call early satiety where they have to eat frequent small meals and that can be associated with weight loss. Occasionally, uh, the uh, the marginal zone, the spleens involved with the marginal zone lymphoma can outgrow their blood supply, and you can get uh, infarcts or devitalized areas in the spleen, which can irritate the capsule of the spleen and cause pain. And very commonly, you can see uh, low blood counts, white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. Uh, often and sometimes with an elevated number of lymphocytes, which are marginal zone lymphoma cells in the blood. Occasionally, uh, these can be associated with autoimmune phenomenon. The anemia that's seen is mostly due to collection of uh, the uh, red blood cells in the spleen, so-called uh, so sequestration which sort of takes them out of the circulation. Uh, bone marrow involvement is, is common, but it, the anemia is usually more due to this, to the uh, sequestration in the spleen rather than involvement of the bone marrow. And sometimes there are autoimmune diseases associated with uh, the marginal zone lymphoma, including autoimmune anemia. There is an association with hepatitis C uh, there is some data from the days before we had really good drugs for hepatitis C uh, where they showed that treatment of the hepatitis C could cause uh, some uh, regressions of the marginal zone lymphoma. This was seen mostly in Europe and has not really been uh, verified in this country. Um, the... Um, I would say that all three types of, lymph of marginal zone lymphomas, splenic, extranodal, and nodal, all have in common a very good prognosis. Uh, and that's kind of regardless of, of treatment, whether or not uh, treatment is given immediately. And for patients who, are, who have no symptoms, uh, we often just follow uh, them. And this could be a third of patients or more. The classic treatment for this in the past was splenectomy, which is removal of the spleen. Um, 
This is very effective. Uh, at five years, uh, most patients following splenectomy didn't require any further treatment, and many patients are never require further treatment after this. Today, we have uh, antibodies against the tumor cells, notably rituximab, notably rituximab which is an antibody against CD20. There are some newer ones, also ofatumumab and obinutuzumab, who also are uh, antibodies against CD20. So that now we tend to treat first if we if if patients need treatment with rituximab. There's less data with the other antibodies, and this can shrink the spleen and really sort of delay or or avoid the need for surgery and removing the spleen. And for patients who uh, uh, need further treatment, uh, we use the same kind of treatment that we treat uh, other uh, low-grade lymphomas, uh, which is often immunochemotherapy. Uh, Extranodal marginal zone lymphomas uh, can involve many sites. The most common site is the stomach. Uh, also, uh, areas around the eye can be involved, the conjunctiva, which is the lining of the eye. Uh, sometimes there are uh, masses in the back of the eye socket and sometimes the uh, tear glands. Uh, it can involve the lung. It can involve other areas in the GI tract. Uh, and so these, are, again, are sometimes called uh, mucosa-associated lymphoid tumors or malt tumors. As I said, the most common one is uh, the one that involves the stomach. It is often associated with uh, finding a bacteria in the stomach called Helicobacter pylori, uh this is also this bacteria is also associated with gastritis and with carcinoma of the stomach um and interestingly it's been found that if you uh treat uh the with antibiotics to try to eradicate the helicobacter from the stomach you can have regressions and which can sometimes be prolonged of the lymphoma in the stomach. For patients who, uh, do, who uh, do not have helicobacter pylori or for those who recur after it, uh, we have been using radiation therapy, uh, which has a very uh, excellent uh, effect. And I should mention that other marginal zone lymphomas, extranodal marginal zone lymphomas that involve single areas without other involvement can also be treated with radiation therapy, such as those that involve the tear duct or the conjunctiva. And um, so um, for uh, patients who uh, recur after radiation therapy, rituximab, the antibody against CD20 can be used. This is used in other low-grade lymphomas as well. And for patients who need something further, we often combine antibodies like rituxan and the other newer ones that I mentioned with chemotherapy, which is called immunochemotherapy, of the type that we use for other uh, low-grade lymphomas like follicular lymphoma. Uh, actually, a clinical trial looked at, a randomized trial, 
looked at uh, rituximab with a oral chemotherapy agent called chlorambucil, uh, looked at the combination of that versus uh, either agent alone, rituximab alone, or chlorambucil alone, and showed that the best responses were with the combination. Um, recently, uh, a newer drug has been approved for use in uh, marginal zone lymphoma. In the relapse setting, I won't say a lot about this, I guess, Dr. Uh, Rutherford will, but this is a drug called abrutinib, which is also used in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, in, uh, yeah, chronic lymphocytic leukemia and is uh, a targeted agent. It's a small molecule that is well-absorbed and uh, targets a biochemical pathway in the tumor cells, which is a driver of cell growth and cell death. So this has now been approved. Uh, it's the only drug that ever, where they ever sought FDA approval, which is a lot of work and a lot of expense, uh, which is maybe the reason why other drugs have not been, uh, they have not applied for FDA approval. But this is the one drug that actually has FDA approval. And then marginal zone lymphomas of the uh, lymph nodes, we treat like other low-grade lymphomas with the same type of chemotherapy, rituximab, or antibodies, or combination of antibody and chemotherapy. And more recently, we have newer targeted agents that are also used. So um, I'd just like to say a word about, so about clinical trials. Um, uh, we do, at Memorial, we have five open clinical trials at the moment, uh, which include patients with marginal zone lymphomas. Uh, these, are, these trials really also are open to other types of lymphomas, uh, but do include marginal zone lymphoma. And actually, these trials, uh, illustri actually, these trials illustrate the three types of clinical trials uh, that are, uh, are conducted in many disease, in many cancers. So phase one trials are trials in which they're new drugs, sometimes they're first in humans, where the toxicity has been worked out in animals and the effectiveness in animal tumors. And, uh, this has begun in humans, uh, very carefully with, uh, starting at a low dose and gradually increasing the dose. And these trials look at the safety, tolerability, and side effects and try to establish the uh, most effective safe dose to move forward. In a phase two trial, uh, the dose of the drug has been established, and uh, then you take a particular disease, and then the primary goal is to look at the effectiveness on the tumor, still looking at safety and tolerability. And then in phase three trials, you have a test drug or combination versus standard of care. And this is done by randomization of patients to uh, one or the other arms of the trial, which is uh, determined by random assignment like a coin toss. It's not done by a coin toss, but it's the same idea. So neither the patient nor the doctor really have any control over that. Uh, actually, the two trials that we have are phase three trials uh, that have marginal zone lymphoma patients are actually double-blinded placebo-controlled, which is unusual in oncology trials. But in those trials, 
uh, not only do, do the patients or doctors have no choice in the in which arm you get, uh, they also are. Uh, uh, you get the patients uh, in the experimental arm get the experimental drug in combination in the case of these two trials, or uh, the uh, 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 control arm would get the standard drugs w with a placebo instead of the test drug. So we actually we have two phase three trials. We have one phase one two phase one trials and one trial that is both phase one and phase two. So I guess that kind of is uh, basically what I have to say, and I guess we could, maybe Dr. Rutherford uh, can talk about uh, relapsed and other concerns. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Strauss. That was wonderful, and a wonderful way to start the program, really. A wonderful introduction to the program and also covering um, a great deal about Marshall's own lymphoma. And while you're talking, questions were coming in. So clearly there are questions out there from people. So keep your questions coming. There come, some people uh, have been on programs before, so they know how to post questions online. But we'll give you all a chance to post your questions when both our speakers are finished. Um, so our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford is the John P. Leonard M.D. Gwertzman Family Research Scholar in Lymphoma, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College, Cornell University. And Dr. Rutherford is going to be addressing treatment for relapsed refractory marginal zone lymphoma, managing treatment side effects and discomfort, key questions to ask your healthcare team, including follow-up care and quality of life concerns. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rutherford. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and uh, excited to hear your questions later as well. Um, so I will reiter reiterate a few of the points that were made by Dr. Strauss and we'll, we'll try to cover some other topics as well. Uh, so I will first start talking about relapsed or refractory marginal zone lymphoma. And first I just wanted to really explain what the difference between those two are. You probably hear that term and may not know exactly what that means. Um, so in general, we call a, a cancer refractory if it does not respond to a treatment. So someone who has already received a treatment and, and very quickly it's clear that that treatment wasn't working, we would call that refractory. Um, relapse tends to be a disease that responded to treatment but then comes back later. It may be two or three years or even longer um, before, it, before it starts to grow again. Um, if if someone has a suspected relapsed or refractory situation of, of someone who's known to have a diagnosis of marginal zone lymphoma, uh, we typically would like to do an imaging test to see exactly what the extent of disease is. And in many cases, we prefer to do a PET CT scan if we can. Um, the PET scan can help give us additional information on the, how active the cells are. Um, so that will also help us to assess for something called transformation, which I'll address in just a bit. Um, and also, in general, we like to try to re-biopsy, even though the patient has a prior diagnosis of marginal zone lymphoma. Occasionally, we can find that there's a different disease there, or again, like I said, um, the transformation, which is when a slower-growing lymphoma-like marginal zone transforms or turns into a faster-growing lymphoma, like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we really um, want to biopsy and know exactly what's going on. And so when possible, we will do that type of uh, procedure. And of course, if there is a, a difficult site to access that would be um, risky for the patient, then we would have a, a very close discussion about the best way to proceed. Um, I want to uh, make a point that I think Dr. Strauss made as well, that even if someone has a relapsed marginal zone lymphoma, they may not need to be treated. Often these patients have 
minimal symptoms, and uh, especially with the nodal version of marginal zone lymphoma, they may have disease spread throughout the body, but it's acting very slowly, um, very quietly, and, and the patient can often live for, for many years without even needing any intervention. And so certainly we don't want to cause any extra toxicity to the patient if, if, we, um, if we think that they have a disease that will remain uh, quiet over, over a long period of time. Um, so often um, the, the right strategy for this type of situation would be even to, to monitor the patient and not, not actually to give any treatment. Um, certainly the management will be highly dependent on what the prior therapy was. Um, so I'm going to give a couple of examples like what actually Dr. Strauss said. For example, if a patient has a malt lymphoma, that's the type that um, is, is often it occurs in the stomach um, is as the most common site and um, has been treated with antibiotics, what we call triple therapy for an H. pylori-associated uh, malt lymphoma of the stomach, uh, and then the, the lymphoma comes back, radiation would be the ideal second-line treatment as he mentioned, and we often do that here as well. Um, if the patient has not received rituximab, but they say they've received some prior therapy such as radiation, um, but the disease has come back, rituximab is a, is a standard uh, second-line treatment in that type of situation. Uh, now, if the patient has already received systemic therapy, um, the, next, uh, the next line would, um, would also be um, reliant on how long of the time has been um, both since they've received rituximab. So it is possible, particularly if it's been a number of years since the patient received rituximab, that it can be used again. Um, it's most typically given for four weeks in a row as a single course, um, and it could be used again later on, say, a few years down the line if the patient's disease uh, recurs. Uh, I do want to mention a couple of chemotherapy options. Dr. Strauss had mentioned um, chemoimmunotherapy that we typically, if, if someone needs a faster response, so rituximab doesn't work immediately, while it's chemo, whereas chemotherapy does tend to work very quickly. And so if someone is, is symptomatic, which does happen sometimes, particularly with the nodal variant of uh, marginal zone lymphoma, we would want to incorporate a chemotherapy drug potentially in combination with rituximab. Um, and so the, the most common one we use is called bendamide. It's a very well-tolerated drug. Um, this is based on a study from 2003 called the STILL NHL, and there's some other studies that support this as well. Um, and usually that's combined with a, a drug like rituximab. Even if the patient had received rituximab in the past, um, we call that BR, and it's typically given um, uh, for six months of treatment. Uh, for uh, The drug is given every four weeks. Um, Dr. Strauss had also mentioned that there are a couple of other newer um, anti-CD20 drugs. So um, rituximab is targeted to a protein called CD20 on the surface of B-cell lymphoma cells. And um, there's another drug called obinutuzumab. He also mentioned ofatumumab. Um, there is some data, and again, this is not standard at this point and not certainly not FDA-approved at this point, but um, there was a study uh, this year, um, Gadolin, uh, that was published in, in, in 2018 um, that looked at uh, patients with indolent lymphomas, including marginal zone, um, that were refractory to rituximab, so their disease grew in spite of rituximab, and, uh, and so that drug was combined with bendamustine. So this is, is somewhat of an evolving picture. I'm going to talk a little bit more about side effects of these different drugs in a bit. Um, but I do want to mention that um, many of these clinical trials um, with that study indolent lymphomas will include uh, marginal zone in in the uh, in the uh, patient population, but they're because it's a, a less common lymphoma than some others like follicular lymphoma. It usually is a smaller, much smaller number of patients. So, for example, in that study I mentioned called Gadolin, 
47 of over 400 patients had marginal zone lymphoma. So uh, for this reason, we often don't ultimately get many FDA-approved drugs, um, but there, there can still be uh, effect efficacy that we see in these types of trials um, in marginal zone lymphoma, just, you know, obviously in smaller numbers than, than the uh, more common lymphomas. Um, I wanted to mention a couple, there's a couple other chemotherapy regimens um, that can be used, um, RCHOP or RCVP. I can talk about that more in detail later if, if you all have questions. Um, those are typically given for um, every three weeks for a total of um, six treatments. Um, but I will shift gears now and talk more about the targeted agents. So uh, Dr. Charles mentioned ibrutinib, which is called a Bruton's tyrosine um, kinase inhibitor, and it's targeted to um, what we call the B-cell receptor part of the, that, uh, which is more directly killing the lymphoma cells than chemotherapy, which is nonspecific and kills all the uh, many dividing cells in the body. And um, this was actually unique in that it was um, FDA approved for uh, marginal lymphoma in 2017 based on the results of a phase two clinical trial where um, it was dosed in um, 60 patients. And about half of the patients um, had extranodal disease and about one-third each had nodal and splenic subtypes. So all of these different um, patients were represented. And in this trial, the patients were required to have had at least one prior treatment and, uh, with a anti-CD20 antibody, usually rituximab. Most of them had received about two prior treatments. And about half of them responded to the ibrutinib, 45% with what we call a partial response and 3% with a complete response. And this response lasted for over a year in many patients. Um, and similar responses were seen in the three different subtypes of um, marginal zone lymphoma, which, um, which is uh, very nice to, to um, know that, that, they're, um, that they're potential agents for these different, um, different subtypes. Um, I know that I'm, I have some other topics to address. I wanted to mention one other targeted drug called lenalidomide, um, which is another oral medication um, that is often studied and given in combination with rituximab. Um, there was a trial called the AUGMENT trial um, that included again, primarily follicular lymphoma patients, but some marginal zone lymphoma patients, too, um, that showed promising results. So this is another potential drug, um, but again, not, not actually FDA-approved, um, but, but something that, that um, is promising for marginal zone lymphoma. Um, I'm going to go ahead on and, and mention the um, just briefly transformed disease. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is something else that we could talk about in the, um, in the question session if you have other questions about this. Um, I usually tell patients that I want them to be aware of the type of symptoms that, that might happen with this, but I don't want them to be overly worried about it. Of course, I know pe people will be worried regardless, but um, it's so essentially if someone has symptoms like fevers, chills, night sweats, extreme fatigue, pain, weight loss, things like that, that tends to go along more with a faster-growing lymphoma. Not always, but usually. And so we, we really encourage our patients, if, they, if they're noticing symptoms like that or they just don't feel right, um, something feels off, to call us in between visits and let us know. Um, we certainly would want to come in and address and often, you know, clearly we would do a physical exam, lab work, and then potentially an imaging test to assess for, um, for this uh, situation that, uh, of uh, the slow-growing lymphoma tra uh, transforming or changing into a faster-growing lymphoma, and if, if that is suspected, we do, do a biopsy, and then the standard treatment would be um, the chemotherapy called RCHOP if they had not, if they had not received those um, chemotherapies. Um, so again, we can talk about that more later if you all have questions. Um, it's really just something more to be aware of as a patient that, uh, and again, not to be overly concerned, but, but to be aware that that is something that can happen and that you should let your doctor know if you have um, these types of concerning symptoms that I mentioned. 
so I'll move on actually to um, uh, discussing the management of treatment side effects and discomfort. And of course, this will be quite dependent on the regimen that is used. Um, in general, in indolent or slow-growing lymphomas like marginal zone, a primary goal is to keep the patient feeling as well as possible for as long as possible. And that's why we often do say that monitoring our what we often say active surveillance approach where we're watching closely but not initiating any treatment, um, that that really is, is often the, the most appropriate management for this disease. Um, and that, that, but part of the reason for that, there, there have been studies looking at indolent or slow-growing lymphomas treated very aggressively with chemotherapy up front, and we can make the disease go away and disappear, but it doesn't actually translate into the patient living longer. And, of course, our goal is for, it's for our patients to live as long, you know, live their, their um, full lifespan and to um, feel as well as possible during that time as well. Uh, so I, I just thought I would go through some of the drugs that I've mentioned already and explain some of the side effects, um, just uh, as this might be relevant to some of you, either currently or in the future. Um, rituximab is actually a very well-tolerated drug. Um, it, it is, it's fairly common that patients can have a um, reaction with the first dose, that is like a shaking, chill-like reaction. That is uh, something that our nurses and our infusion centers are very used to dealing with, and they run the drug very slowly. Um, when this occurs, we give steroids, Benadryl, and Tylenol, and so that, that usually is just an issue that happens with the first dose and not on subsequent doses. Um, we always check uh, for hepatitis B in the blood prior to um, starting rituximab. It can cause reactivation of that uh, virus if someone had been exposed to it in the past. We have good, very good drugs now to deal with that, and we'll put people on a preventative dose of that type of drug if needed but before they start rituximab, and that um, uh, minimizes any issues. Um, and the other, uh, in general, rituximab can cause someone to be more at risk for infections um, in subsequent months, so something to, to watch out for. Um, I'm just going to uh, briefly go through some, um, the, I mentioned a drug called bendamustine. Um, the primary side effects of that are rash and decreased blood counts, which can, um, which can increase the risk of infection or bleeding. Um, it's typically given every four weeks, and we, in older patients particularly, we will use a drug called Nuasta uh, or Pegfilgrastin to help boost the white blood cell count in between um, treatments um, in order to minimize the risk of infection. Um, that, that drug can cause some bone pain. It's something to be aware of about a week to 10 days after receiving it, and um, that use of naproxen, um, Aleve, ibuprofen, drugs like that tend to um, help minimize the pain. Of course, we want that to be taken with food because it can irritate the stomach otherwise. Um, I'll go ahead and just mention the, um, the not, not novel targeted type drugs that I've mentioned, abrutinib and linolidamide, um, whereas it's, it is very um, uh, helpful for patients, I think in, in many cases they prefer to be able to take an oral medication at home rather than having to come into a, an infusion center to get treatment. Um, but we do want to note that these, these drugs can have very real side effects as well, um, even though they tend to be uh, more targeted specifically to the lymphoma cells. Uh, abrutinib we have a lot of experience with in other types of lymphomas. Um, Dr. Schross mentioned CLL. There's another disease called mantle cell lymphoma that we also use it for. Um, it, it's most Probably its most common side effect is diarrhea. Uh, we usually ask patients to take it at night, um, which tends to decrease the diarrhea or at least the, um, doesn't cause it to be as clinically um, bothersome for patients. Um, if you have diarrhea, your doctor may advise you to take loperamide or Imodium, um, but I certainly would want you to contact your doctor before doing so because sometimes people can have an infection uh, that's causing diarrhea that we would want to know about. 
Um, another couple of side effects to know about for abrutinib, it can increase the risk of bleeding due to an aspirin-like effect. So it would be very important for you to let your doctor know before any surgical or dental procedures. We typically hold this drug for about three days before and after procedures. Um, and then finally, there is a heart arrhythmia that's called atrial fibrillation, um, which can be more common in patients who are on abrutinib. tends to be a very manageable type of issue, but something that we need to know and, and often will hold the drug um, if this happens and then if we deem safe uh, in very close consult with a cardiologist um, can eventually restart it. Um, so I think I'll go ahead and move on um, to a couple other um, points, and then, again, a question and answer session coming up can, um, can address a lot of the other issues that you probably want to discuss. Um, a couple of key questions that I thought of um, to ask your healthcare team would be, one, to um, ensure that they're confident with the diagnosis, and um, I do encourage you all that getting a second opinion either on the pathology, so for example, if you had a lymph node biopsy and having it reviewed at an academic center um, and potentially even having a second opinion at a, an academic center for the management, um, what I think is important particularly for this disease um, because, uh, as I mentioned and, and Dr. Strauss has mentioned, that many times the um, what we would deem the most appropriate management um, observation or close monitoring and not with treatment. And so I think certainly if you are, are recommended for, for an aggressive treatment, I, I would want um, uh, your uh, I would want you to, to run that by another doctor who focuses particularly on lymphoma um, and then I, I think it's important for you to understand what the length of the recommended treatment and, or plan for monitoring would be how often would you be seen and uh, what exactly would be done during those time periods um, I do want to note that we, we don't frequently do um, imaging scans um, repeatedly for, for patients with marginal zone lymphoma because they often can um, can be quiet for a long period of time we'd rather not continue, like if I were to say I recommend doing a, a scan, like a CT scan every six months, we could be doing that for years and that would expose the patient to a lot of radiation that we'd rather avoid if we could. And certainly there are times that scans need to be done, but for the most part we, we like to uh, watch very closely clinically without scans unless there's some sort of symptom we need to follow. Um, and then the, the, another question um, I would ask your um, your doctor is if um, they have any clinical trials open. Um, Dr. Strauss mentioned some trials. We also have some trials here at Cornell where I am, and, and I think it's it's good to have that as an option, particularly in this disease, um, given that that um, there there aren't that many FDA approved therapies. There are a lot of promising drugs that are being studied in clinical trials, and you may have access to to something in a clinical trial setting that you wouldn't be able to get um, in clinical care. So I think that's something to think about. I know that I'm, I'm going over my time, so I'm just going to quickly mention a couple of quality of life concerns. I think it, quality of life is of particular importance in this disease um, because, um, again, I, it, the nature of this slow-growing type, type lymphoma is that people will live many years with it, and so it's very important um, that we um, keep them feeling as well as possible for as long as possible. The prognosis of, of um, patients with, with uh, marginal zone lymphoma is, is very good, and um, and we want to really emphasize, uh, again, maximizing their, their, how well they're feeling, you know, minimizing any side effects of, of therapy. Um, I think that I actually will, will go ahead and end there, given that um, I've, I've gone over my time, I think. And, and then um, if you all have specific questions about quality of life, I'm happy to address that in, in the question and answer session. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. That was really outstanding and wonderful, and uh, really covered a lot of areas for everyone to uh, address, to be aware of. And I know there'll be questions for you also. They're coming in for the Q and A. And just before we take questions, so please, everyone, start to you can um, you'll you'll get directions. But for those of you, just start thinking of your questions that you'd like to ask. I would just just like to say a few words about cancer care services, so you can access those services for those who might need other additional services. We are um, staffed by oncology social workers. We are a national organization and um, provide um, practical and financial and counseling services to people living with lymphoma with all types of cancers as well. Um, so we have a staff um, who you can access either by calling our um, our 800 number, a hope line, or visiting our website. And that information will all be sent to you at the end of the program. We'll be getting an evaluation with all those numbers. Any, anything that we all mentioned as a resource, you'll be getting that at the end of the program. And they're on all the materials you've received from us anyway. Um, but the, um, you have a chance to talk with one of our social workers about your concerns. Perhaps you have concerns about how to cope with this or how to talk with your boss about your being having to take some time for your treatment or how to talk to your children about this. Um, so all these types of questions we can address and others as well. Um, we also uh, offer support groups, and many people find both a telephone support group or an online support group very helpful to be with other people who are coping with um, lymphoma, um, with a, a rare lymphoma, um, with um, also people who may be caregivers, people who may be young adults, who may be older adults. So we have different types of programs. For our online programs, we have over 138 programs, so they have all different types of topics, and they're all listed on our website for you to access. Um, and also, we do have um, a number of these type of programs that you're on today, and we have a number of publications that are often based on them in fact sheets, so that there's lots of information that you can get from us. Um, we're not the only organization in the world, so to some extent, you will be getting resources about all the organizations that partner with us on this program today, who are also a terrific resource for all of you, including the Lymphoma Research Foundation, Leukemia Lymphoma Society. There's just some wonderful organizations out there as well for you to access um, for getting just information um, as well. And we did recently just develop an app, um, a meditation app, which many people find helpful in dealing with the stress of coping with um, lymphoma. And so um, I encourage all of you to use our website to download that, take a look at it. It's free, and, um, and it might be helpful to you. With that all being said, we now do have time for questions. Um, so I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, uh, Crystal, let's let the questions begin, and you'll explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press more than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Brian B. Your line is open. Uh, thank you. As a foreigner uh, living with marginal zone lymphoma, in my case, uh, extranodal in the lung, um, if I'm interested in pursuing treatment in the United States, how do I pick sort of the most relevant and suitable hospital, and uh, how would I go about uh, sort of applying for a second opinion or treatment? Well, that's an excellent question, Brian. It's get, it gets asked a lot on these programs, and uh, welcome to being on the call today. Um, uh, Dr. Strauss, do you want to address this in a general way? Yes. Um, Marginal zone lymphoma of the lung is a very interesting disease. Um, it is, in my experience, particularly uh, 
slow-growing, and I have followed patients for years with things that you can see on scans or x-rays, and and nothing happens. They they don't change. And uh, I would say that I have most of the patients in my practice with that particular type of lymphoma, I observe, uh, and and some of them I've many of them, most of them I've never had to treat. Um, I think that it you know to get a second opinion on on the management of this i think is 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 a, is is a good idea and uh i think uh, either of our two centers would be fine we have an international center here for foreign nationals where we can arrange for uh for consultations and they probably have something similar at Weill cornell dr rutherford do you do you want to comment as well? Yes, I, I agree with what Dr. Strahl said, and we do also have a, a center that, that coordinates um, international uh, patients coming for, for second opinions. Um, but I, I, I agree with what he said from a clinical standpoint as well. And so, um, Brian, actually, um, if you wish, um, I, we can email afterwards, and I guess we, we could get that information. Or they just go to your website. How do they get information about where the, who, who to contact in the international um, is that on the website for Memorial and Welcome? Yeah, I think it's uh, it should be on our uh, on our website mskcc.org. Okay. Carolyn, I can I can send yes. you in, I I can okay. send you information by email. Okay, that would be terrific. And then what I'll do is um, when you get so um, Brian, when you and, and that's true for everybody, when you get the evaluation, you're going to get all the resources that were mentioned during the program today. So we'll mention we will include this as well. Um, and um, you also may choose to see people also in your country of origin going to a second opinion institution as well. That's another option that you have as well um, um, before you um, come to the United States. So just in terms of it's really your choice, but you have that option as well. Um, um, so that's, that's um, an excellent question. And I actually should also say... Um, to Brian, to anyone who's uh, on the call who is an international participant, that actually, um, so many of the services I described, the online support groups, those are basically in, a, they're, uh, they're asynchronous in terms of time, so any time of the day or night, we have many international people on those support groups. Um, the telephone groups, it just depends on your time zone, whether you prefer that or you prefer the online groups um, as a preference. And any of the services just to visit our website and talk to one of our social workers online, that's obviously available as well, and all the other resources, so just to be aware of that. And that's true for all of the different organizations that we collaborate with as well, so just to be aware of that. Excellent, excellent first question. And um, uh, we have a question from one of our online participants, um, and this one um, for Dr. Um, uh, Rutherford. Um, how many times can you have rituxan for relapsed marginal zone lymphoma? How many relapses if it lasts two to three years? If I think that's in a general way. Okay, I think that's an excellent question and very relevant to this disease. Um, so just to repeat the question is, um, how many times can you receive rituximab, um, especially if you if, it, if the effects of it are lasting for two to three years? So I don't think there's an, a limit, and I would say I don't see a lot of, of a downside to trying it again in, in, a, in a patient in whom it's worked before. 
And so I, I can't give you an exact number, and it certainly would depend on, on your clinical um, scenario, but, but, you know, I think it can be used multiple times in a course. And as I've mentioned, um, it, we, we typically give it with, when we actually do initiate chemo immunotherapy, so with the bendamustine and rituximab regimen. And in other lymphomas, we often use uh, rituximab for multiple lines of therapy. So, um, so I think that, that uh, it is reasonable to, to, do, to use it, uh, you know, many times. And uh, certainly if, if it doesn't have an effect on, you know, in a particular situation, then um, the question would be, you know, what would be the next line of therapy? Would it be a brutinib? Would it be uh, a combination with chemotherapy? And that really would, would um, depend on a number of factors that you would need to discuss with your doctor. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Um, Josh, you want anything to that? Or? No, I, I, I agree. It's a very useful tool, either alone or in combination, and it can be used. Uh, it can be used multiple times in many situations. And um, we have another online question. Thank you. Um, another online question from one of our participants for Dr. Strauss. If the nodules have doubled in size in lungs in four months and new nodules, would this be considered aggressive? Also, if other places, parotid gland, thyroid, pelvis, have you heard of having only BC16 and no BC12 with ENMZL? Um, I'm not sure. In a general way. <laughs> I'm not sure what, um, shall I repeat it? Or? Well, I think, so, I mean, if I understand it, if you have a marginal zone of the lymphoma of the lung and there's, there's a lot of growth, then I think that should be investigated. I mean, one of the uh, many, if not most cases, typical cases, really not much happens. There may be a little bit of growth over a period of time, but no symptoms. But if there's a lot of growth, then uh, that has to be investigated because uh, it may be, you know, even though it may be the same lymphoma, it may be growing faster than the average marginal zone lymphoma, or as Dr. Rutherford uh, mentioned, it may have transformed into a faster growing uh, variant of the marginal zone lymphoma and should be biopsied to see if it looks different. I mean, this would be the same underlying marginal zone lymphoma but uh, when it grows faster, it can look different. Uh, that actually is not that common in marginal zone lymphoma. It's much more. It's more common in some of the other low-grade lymphomas like follicular lymphoma or CLL. So I think that I would be very, uh, you know, I, I would be suspicious that you may need something. If it's marginal zone lymphoma and other sites, then it's really not just marginal zone lymphoma of the, of the lung. It's kind of more systemic, generalized marginal zone lymphoma that could, and especially if there are new sites, it could require treatment. But again, biopsy in, the, in those situations is often very helpful to see if you still have the same type of lymphoma or if it is transformed into a more aggressive uh, variant that looks a little bit different, these things could inform treatment. So uh, I don't know. In a general way, I, I hope that that addresses the question. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, Dr. Rutherford, do you want to add anything to that, Dr. Rutherford? I, I don't have anything to add. Okay. okay. There's another question. Um, and uh, this one would be for Dr. Rutherford, and I, actually I'm going to read it. Um, it's from an online participant. Um, 
and there are a lot of abbreviations, so if you would just explain what those are, but I'm going to just read them. Um, so the question is, is ATZERRA currently used off-label as an alternative to rituxan for SMZL? Whether or not it is currently used, is ATZERRA a realistic potential alternative as a frontline monotherapy? If so, what is the anticipated timing for availability? So um, if you could... This question. I so let me. I'm not sure which drug they're referring to. Can you spell again? This is A T Z E R R A, and in the parentheses O S um, A T U M. Okay. Oh, okay. So that that was one of the drugs that Dr. Strauss was mentioning, ofatumumab. Um, and I'm I'm sorry. I just um, we you know, often in, in um, the uh, medicine world we we know the um, gener generic name and not the brand name. Uh, so I didn't. I actually didn't know that that uh, brand name. Um, we actually don't use that drug that much, but it is um, potentially an option for various lymphomas, um, indolent lymphomas. Um, and so I you know I I think. Um, Certainly, rituximab would be favored for uh, an untreated patient, um, but I think uh, this of, that's ofatumumab and obinutuzumab are two other anti-CD20 um, monoclonal antibodies, so again, targeted drugs to um, the a protein on the surface of the lymphoma cells, the B-cell lymphoma cells called CD20. Um, so I, I think it is, you know, there is data to support using it. Um, I have to be honest that it's not a drug that I use very commonly and, and not in, in marginal zone lymphoma. I have used it in other diseases. Uses. Um, but uh, but I think I, I would watch you know the, particularly the, the drug obinutuzumab is is one that that um, is is uh, being used more and studied more in clinical trials um, and might might actually become one that, that we use more in marginal zone lymphoma. But again, this this drug is is an is an option for marginal zone lymphoma as well. Excellent, thank you. And, and Dr. Strauss, do you want to comment on that as well? No, I really don't have anything to add to that. Okay. Um, and we have another question in front of our online participants uh, for Dr. Um, Strauss. I have extranodal marginal zone lymphoma. The doctor says that he will give me antibiotics and proton pump inhibitors and that there's a high chance that the treatment will remove the lymphoma. How does the treatment do that? Do I need chemotherapy? Yes. Uh, I mentioned uh, with the marginal zone lymphomas of the lung, there is often an associated infection with the bacteria Helicobacter pylori or H. pylori. And yes, uh, the first uh, frontline treatment for that would be antibiotics to try to eliminate the H. pylori from the stomach. And if you do that, there are many cases that can have regressions of the lymphoma that can be longstanding. So I think that would be probably the frontline treatment for that particular type of marginal zone lymphoma. And Dr. Rutherford, do you want to add anything? Or? I, I don't have anything to add. Okay. And a question now for Dr. Rutherford. Um, what can I do for my father who has many kidney stones on his chemotherapy um, for his marginal zone lymphoma? His doctor tells him to drink more water. Are there other things you can recommend to help? So, again, it's a general uh, response to this in terms of... Right. Okay. 
Um, so it, when people are on chemotherapy in general, they, they may develop other medical issues. Um, kidney stones is something that can happen as well. I agree that hydration is, is one of the best ways to deal with this. Um, without knowing the whole scenario that's being described, I think I'll, I need to just talk generally. You know, there are some, some cases where kidney stones need to have um, an intervention if they're causing um, significant pain. It sounds like that's probably not the case here. Um, you know, I think I, I would trust that, that, that the oncologist is monitoring closely and may need to have con a consult with a, um, with a um, urologist or sometimes nephrologist, um, so either a, um, a, a someone who specializes in, in basically in the genitourinary system if it really is becoming a recurrent problem. But I think it, it's reasonable to see one of the specialists there to have them um, help manage the patients. Um, there are sometimes certain medications that can be given to, to minimize the risk of kidney stones. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, for Dr. Um, Strauss, what are your thoughts about on using rituxan for maintenance after chemotherapy for nodal marginal zone lymphoma? Um, there is limited data on that. I think for follicular lymphoma, which is a more common type of low-grade B-cell lymphoma, uh, there have been studies to show uh, that after initial treatment with rituximab, which is generally given weekly for four weeks, that various lengths of treatment with so-called maintenance rituximab, usually given as a single dose every eight weeks or every, every eight or 12 weeks, uh, that use of maintenance can prolong uh, the remission, though it doesn't seem to have an overall effect on, you know, survival or anything like that. So I think that uh, maintenance treatment every a single dose of rituximab every two or three months is, is reasonable to try to get a longer remission. How long that should be, I think, is really uh, there, there are there are varying opinions about that, uh, whether it should be four to six treatments or whether it should be for uh, two years, 12 treatments. Uh, I think there are pros and cons. I mean, I think that, you know, 12 treatments is a lot of rituximab and uh, possibly things like infections could be risk could be increased. On the other hand, uh, you know, a shorter course of maintenance might also get a good remission, though maybe not quite as long as more rituxan. So I think that's really kind of a matter of there's some disagreement. I think, you know, it is not mandatory to get uh, uh, a maintenance treatment because another option would be to get the treatment with rituximab and then get rituximab again as Dr. Rutherford said can be done if you have another, you know, sort of relapse or progression of the disease a year or two later. So that would be another option. So I think that maintenance treatment is reasonable, but it, you know, since there is no effect on survival or really ultimate outcome, I think it's really a matter of discussion between the patient and the doctor. Some patients say, I want to do everything I can to have the longest remission possible. Other patients will say, look, I don't want to be bothered. I'll, you know, I'll get it again successfully if I need it. So I think that's a discussion and not a mandate. Okay. 
Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Wallace, do you want to add anything? Or? I I agree with what Dr. Okay. Strong said. Okay, thanks. And um, a question for Dr. Um, Rutherford. Um, are there supplemental treatments to marginal zone lymphoma? I'm finishing up my chemotherapy and hoping for remission. I'd like to know what else I can do to aid remission and prevent relapse. General I, think that's an, I think that's an excellent question and one that many people ask. And, you know, I think that we're having increasing evidence that general types of, of health focused strategies, eating a well-balanced diet, getting exercise. I, I have a particular interest in, in exercise effects um, in, in lymphoma patients, and we're uh, actually planning to do a study that will look at that um, in people that are undergoing treatment for lymphoma. So I think um, really focusing on your overall health, trying to get back to your normal life as much as you can after having gone through, I'm sure, what was um, what was a tough uh, stretch of treatment, um, That that's what we would advocate for. So just you know, really um, trying to, to do normal um, health health related type um, uh, interventions um, your your cancer center may have um, a nutritionist um, you know and other uh, other resources available that you could um, that you could uh, benefit from uh, at this point there aren't any clear cut medications or other um, interventions from that standpoint um, but I think again keep watching um, following closely with your doctor and, you know, maybe over time that we do um, learn that there are some specific strategies that we have, um, that we gain evidence that, that would help um, in this situation. So, you know, continuing to follow up closely with your doctor will be helpful to, to learn about any um, new data that comes out. Excellent. Well, thank you. I actually, Dr. Strauss, do you want to add anything? Or? No, no, I, again, I think we... We seem to agree on everything, so that's that's good. That's wonderful. I I actually want to thank both Dr. Strauss and Dr. Rutherford for outstanding presentations and wonderful responses to all the questions we've had. Um, and um, and uh, also, um, I want to thank our participants who asked such great questions, both on the telephone and online, which actually enhanced the call as well, and all of you who've been listening as well. Now. Um, I know there are many more questions in queue, um, and uh, but I do want to kind of try to wrap this up because we said this would be about an hour program, and so we want to stay to that time frame as much as possible. So um, I do want to remind all of you that um, uh, that you may still have questions, and of course I don't want to sidestep your healthcare team. That you basically can go back to your healthcare team with the information you've learned today. Um, and ask perhaps more informed questions or take the questions back to your healthcare team that you asked on the program today or wanted to ask today. In addition to that, um, I often recommend uh, many of the lymphoma organizations as a great resource for all of you. So Lymphoma Research Foundation, of course, um, they have a tremendous amount of information for you. The Leukemia Lymphoma Society is a terrific resource. Um, and many of the other um, lymphoma organizations that you'll be getting in your evaluations about those groups as well. Um, also, I just want to mention that we do have two programs coming up um, because there's a large meeting occurring. I believe it starts tomorrow, the ASH meeting, American Society of Clinical and American Society of Hematology, and in which they do address updates from on lymphoma. And so we have a program coming up. Um, on December 6th, on just um, uh, it's a whole update on updates from that meeting um, called Ash um, on December 6th, and then we have one specifically updates on on lymphoma from Ash on uh, January 15th. So those might be of interest to you, and you'll you'll have those in your materials when you get your evaluation form. All the upcoming programs as well. Most importantly, 
as we conclude this program, we would want we would not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with mental cell lymphoma or any type of cancer or lymphoma. We want you to know now, know now that there are many other people, of course, that are dealing with this. Even though it's a rare lymphoma, there are many other people dealing with it and wanting to get information. And many of you are um, that there are resources for you that you you may feel alone in your communities where you live because you don't know anybody else with mental cell lymphoma. But nevertheless, there are marginal zone lymphoma, but there are many other people with marginal zone lymphoma throughout the world and throughout this country and that you can connect up with. And you can get help and resources in coping with it on a day-to-day basis. So please take advantage of the services of Cancer Care, as well as, as the other services you'll be hearing about in, when you get your evaluation form. And um, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.